0: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast that gives you a sample of all our coverage from this week. I'm Richard Cockett, the Britain business editor, and on your menu, the pitfalls of obscure journalese, Alaska's rubbish problem, and how British spy novels reveal some core truths about the country. But first, nowhere to hide was our cover line this week. The ability for humans to recognize faces is crucial in everything from basic social relationships to the formation of complex civilizations. But as machines edge closer to human abilities, society could fundamentally change, our cover leader
1: explained. Technology is rapidly catching up with the human ability to read faces. In America, Facial recognition is used by churches to track worshippers' attendance In Britain, by retailers to spot past shoplifters. In China, it verifies the identities of ride-hailing drivers, permits tourists to enter attractions, and lets people pay for things with a smile. As faces are public, it would seem this technology wouldn't be intruding. And yet the ability to record, store and analyse images of faces cheaply, quickly and on a vast scale promises one day to bring about fundamental changes to notions of privacy, fairness and trust.
0: Indeed, the face is not just a name tag, and
1: machines can now read the complex information contained within. Some firms are analysing faces to provide automated diagnoses of rare genetic conditions, such as Haidu-Cheney syndrome, far earlier than would otherwise be possible. But while such findings would be beneficial, the ability for computers to read faces also threatens. Researchers at Stanford University have demonstrated that when shown pictures of one gay man and one straight man, the algorithm could attribute their sexuality correctly 81% of the time. Humans managed only 61%. In countries where homosexuality is a crime, software which promises to infer sexuality from a face is an alarming prospect. And eventually, the fabric of social interaction itself might change. Dissembling helps grease the wheels of daily life. If your partner can spot every suppressed yawn and your boss every grimace of irritation, marriages and working relationships will be more truthful but less harmonious. So, best enjoy those
0: hidden emotions while you can. You can read more about facial recognition technology in the issue on newsstands now. From Detection to Deceit, we move on to our Britain section, where our batchet columnist explored the history of espionage in the country's
1: literature. If you want to understand Britain, read its spy novels. Few countries have dominated any industry, as Britain has dominated the industry of producing fictional spies. Britain invented the spy novel with Rudyard Kipling's dissection of The Great Game in Kim and John Buchan's adventure stories. It consolidated its lead with Somerset Maugham's Ashenden stories and Graham Greene's invention of Greenland. It then produced the world's two most famous spooks, James Bond, the dashing womaniser, and George Smiley, the cerebral cuckold, who reappears this week in a new book. So what accounts for this success? One reason is the revolving door between the secret establishment and the literary establishment. Some of the lions of British literature worked as spies. Green worked for the intelligence services, both Ian Fleming, the creator of Bond, and John le Carré, the creator of Smiley, earned their living as spies. It is as if the secret services are not so much arms of the state as creative writing schools. And jolly good ones at that. The spy novel is the quintessential British fictional form, in the same way that the Western is quintessentially American. Britain's best spy novelists are so good precisely because they use the genre to explore what it is that makes Britain British. The obsession with secrecy, the nature of the establishment, the agonies of imperial decline and the complicated tug of patriotism.
0: Spying also provides Britain with a way of reclaiming its greatness
1: by excelling in the most sophisticated form of foreign policy. The Americans have the money and the bluster, but the British have the brains to spend it wisely and restrain the Americans from going over the top. And back in the real world, America may need a little
0: of that money to clear up a festering problem – rubbish. Trash management in remote Alaskan villages is difficult, but with federal funding set to fall by half, the issue isn't going to be cleared up any time soon, as an article in our United States section reported.
2: Managing rubbish in Alaska's bush villages, small communities accessible only by boat or aircraft – and often hundreds of miles from the nearest highway, is hard. Waste, including freezers, computers and vehicles, piles up with no easy way to remove it. Rural landfills, which are mostly open, unlined and unmanaged, spill across tundra and into nearby rivers, and hazardous materials leach into soil and water.
0: In one village, residents throw between five to ten refrigerators on the landfill each year, and the same numbers of four-wheelers.
2: Complicating matters is the fact that more than half of village households, about 6,000 homes across the state, do not have indoor plumbing and instead rely on honey buckets, five-gallon buckets lined with a plastic bag and with a loose seat perched on top. Residents dump their buckets by foot or all-terrain vehicle in the landfill. The stench wafts
0: into the nearby cemetery during funerals. Throwing more money at the problem could help, but that doesn't seem to be the plan.
2: From 2020, funding from the Environmental Protection Agency that has been essential for dealing with rubbish in these remote places will disappear.
0: A trashy decision if ever there was one. China the world's second biggest economy, has often been accused of overproduction. It's the world's top producer of steel, aluminium, cement and coal. But China has been trying to curb overcapacity. In our Money Talks podcast, our Asia Economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, talked through the country's new plan. You can almost look at it as a great leap backwards. You know, the the great leap forwards uh, in in the late 1950s was Mao's idea about modernizing the Chinese economy. Uh, And one of the uh, ideas of that was that within 15 years, uh, he said, China would be able to produce more steel uh, than Britain. If you look at the current plans, in fact, in the next five years, China is going to eliminate steel capacity equivalent to 15 times that of what Britain makes today. So it's you know, a remarkable testament to uh, how much the Chinese economy has, has advanced over the last few decades and um, the current predicament that, that it finds itself in. In Babbage, our science and technology show, we explore the burgeoning issue of range anxiety. Owners of electric cars have long suffered from the worry of running out of juice while out cruising the open road. But Simon Wright, our in-house car guru, explained how drivers' attitudes must change.
1: There has to be a different mentality for electric cars. There has to be the sort of top-up mentality, whereby you don't run your tank down to zero and go to a a handily placed uh, fuel station. You top up your car where you can. The speed of charging will depend on where you're topping up. At home, you can have a slow charger, which can take a few hours to top up your car. On the sort of curbside, you might want something more more sort of medium speed, which will take a a couple of hours to give your car a decent charge. On the motorway, a very fast charger, which you might pay a premium price for, could top up your car eventually in just a few minutes, not unlike what it would take to fill with fuel.
0: Our final taste of this week's issue comes from the letters to the editor. Our columnist on all things linguistic, Johnson, recently wrote about the pitfalls of journalese for language journalists all use in their trade. And while the idea is to use words to clarify meaning, some words, particularly those used in attention-grabbing headlines, simply confuse readers more. A couple of our readers wrote in with examples of their favourites. Chris Johnson in Geneva
1: wrote, Surely the all-time winner of tabloid reader-grabbing headline writing, Article Johnson, August 26th, had to be the late News of the World in the 1970s for its highly informative banner... Quickly picked up by Private Eye, nudist welfare man's wife falls in love with Chinese hypnotist from Co-op Bacon Factory. Who could resist reading on? Three missing prepositions,
0: all the same. George Smith, from Middletown, New York, wrote in to complain about the depiction of his local headlines.
2: I take some issue with Johnson's description of the most New York headline in the New York Post as mob cop sex fury. I believe there are at least two better post-headlines. Headless body in topless bar and head red dead upon the sudden departure of a Soviet leader.
0: Podcast Sudden End. That's all for this episode of Tasting Menu. If you have any thoughts about any of our shows, as always, email them to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.